So a few months ago, a couple months ago, we um, started with a passage in the book of Acts that looked at the formation of the first um, group of deacons in the church. And then from there, we've kind of followed the story of the growth of the church, the expansion of God's grace through the ancient world and the very early stages of development of the church. We've been working through, looking at the book of Acts, and we come now to chapter 14, which will be uh, the conclusion of uh, Paul and Barnabas' uh, first missionary journey uh, out into the uh, Greek-speaking world to share the gospel of Christ in places where they've never heard of the truth and grace of Jesus Christ. And so, as we read this morning, you will, you will see a couple of uh, places in this passage where God's grace becomes not just transformative of people's souls, but where it also becomes transformative in, in this physical reality, and miracles happen and wonders occur, and we'll take a glimpse as we read this as to what's going on and why and what God is doing as we look at this uh, concluding section of Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey and God's miraculous grace. Follow along with me either in your bulletin or on the screen behind me or in one of the Bibles in the seat in front of you as we read from the 14th chapter of the book of Acts. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went, as usual, into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country, where they continued to preach the good news. In Lystra, there sat a man crippled in his feet, who was lame from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, 
they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Men, why are you doing this? We too are only men, human, like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he was not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derbe. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After getting through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them, and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. I'm not sure how to say this. So I want to say, I want to say, I wish you could have known me before I knew Christ. But generally speaking, I don't let the people who knew me before I knew Christ come to this church, right? We want to keep these two groups of people apart from each other. Um, But I was a... uh, let's just say, substantially prideful young man, uh, full of myself is probably a better way to put it. And I really didn't think that I needed God. And so I kind of thought that Christianity was a game. And and here's kind of how it went. Okay, God says this stuff, I want to do this stuff. How can I get away with as much of that as I can while, you know, trying to stay as much in line with that as I can? And there was a man by the name of Bill Galvin who uh, sold lighting for a living. That's what he did. And Bill 
volunteered his time every Wednesday night to sit down with this group of sophomore guys at my high school. And he would plan out a Bible study every week, you know, and he would have us read a passage of Scripture, and then the hands would start going up. And Bill is trying to ask, like, theological questions, like to help us understand who Christ is and what his grace is all about. And we're asking really, really deep questions like, so if we're invited to a keg party and um, other people are drinking, how many beers can we drink and still be okay with God? And at that point, the entire Bible study is derailed, right? Because every guy there, that's, that's now the only thing they want to know. And whatever Bill had planned to teach us about Christ and his riches and his grace, no one cared about anymore. Or another question would be asked. So let's say I'm out with my girlfriend. How far can I go and still be a Christian? All right, And you could just see Bill going, oh, dude, I worked for three hours to put this Bible study together, and we're not going to get to any of it. And that's about the, the depth of my faith at that point in life. That's just where I was. And Bill, by some miracle of grace continued to put together those Bible studies and meet with us. He spent time with us. You may have noticed in this passage, it says that the apostles spent considerable time there. Just being with God's people to strengthen them and grow them and to be patient with them. Um, When we look at a passage like this, I I think it's tempting because there are some clear um, places where miracles take place, visible miracles. The, The explosion of the supernatural into the natural world where things happen that we cannot explain in human terms i think it's tempting to focus on those things and to wonder like well if that stuff happened then why doesn't it happen now what's wrong with us and you saw the the man who was crippled from birth Uh, is laying there and Paul looks at him and he sees that he has the faith to be healed. And it's tempting, I think, for us to look at these passages and focus on the dramatic or focus on the supernatural in that sense. But I think there's really just two things going on in this passage. There is is the expansion of the gospel, the expansion of the grace of God, and there is the caring for the people of God. 
And so I want to look at those two things, and, and I'm not ignoring anything else in the passage. We'll try to do justice to everything that's there. But I want to look at those two components of what's going on. You see, uh, this is worth pointing out. Paul and Barnabas leave from a city called Antioch that's in the very southeastern corner of Turkey. Do we have a map? Okay, there's, there's Antioch 1 over there. And this, this Seleucia is the town where they get on a boat and they hit the island of Cyprus and they stop in, really in two cities on the island of Cyprus. And then they take another boat over to Italia, which is another port city. And from there, they go up into the province of Gala and then all the way through Gala back over to uh, Paul's home state, which is Cilicia. And, and then the whole getting there is a missionary journey exclusively. That's what they're doing. They're sharing the gospel. They're starting churches. But notice how they, what they do on the way back. They go to all but one of the cities that they had been to as missionaries. They go back. And they spend time there. And they strengthen they encourage, they teach, and they do another thing we'll talk about in a little while. They install elders at each of those places, people that would be trustworthy to care for the people of God. And so it's not just a sort of a single pass. They go through, and then they go back through. And they spend time reinforcing what they did on their previous visit to each of those cities. Um, So let's look at the two sides of this journey. Um, And by the way, I forgot to point this out. Can we go back to that slide for a second? Just in case you're completely befuzzled, there's another Antioch up in the northern portion of Pisidia. This just, it's the same name, but it's a different city, excuse me. So they start in one Antioch, and they go to another one later, and then they return there, and then they return home to Antioch. This Antioch is the second largest city in the, in the ancient world, in the Roman Empire, Rome being the largest. And so it's a pretty important place, but uh, I just thought I'd point that out in case anyone was actually paying attention to those kinds of things. Um, not exactly the smoothest terrain to travel. Yes, and so when they, when they head up into Pisidia and Gala, they're mainly following those rivers up and then following a mountain range back over, and then they, they follow the topography almost the whole way. It's basically the only way to travel back then other than the, the road that the Romans built to get from Rome to uh, what was not then Constantinople but would eventually be that. But that's another thing. You can learn about that in history class. All right. Good. So let's take a look first at this call to expand God's kingdom. This first portion of the journey where they are going and they're confronting the, the people in these towns with the, the truth of the gospel, with the grace of Jesus Christ. Um, what do we learn from this expansion of God's kingdom and our call into the expansion of God's kingdom. We learn that we must communicate grace. That's 
essentially what Paul and Barnabas are doing. Um, you, see, you hear them in, in the opening verses of this chapter uh, being described as speaking effectively about the grace of God. They're clear, uh, they're patient, they spend time in these places, enough time to uh, convey what it is they have to say. They're clear, they're patient, and they're bold. They're not really afraid of anyone or anything. They're called, and we are called, to communicate God's grace, to be clear, to be patient, to be bold. And right along with that comes the expectation of opposition. I need to make sure I worded this right. Yes. And so very early in their journeys to each of these places, they they clearly communicate the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ. And what do they encounter? They count a little bit of acceptance and a lot of resistance. Okay? Um, you know, I think this is an important point to let sink in. The Word of God does divide. It does create divisions between the people who get it and the people who do not. And we are not to be uh, of a mind that we're somehow better than anyone else because we get it. But nonetheless, it will create, when the Word of God is being proclaimed, it will create division. There will be uh, acceptance and there will be resistance. It's just part of how this whole thing works. And so when you're at school or at work and, and you take the risk of, of sharing your faith in some way, of encouraging someone in, in relation to who Christ is and what he has done, you may pay a price for that. That may drive you away from that person, at least for a time, or they may respond, well, you don't know, we don't know, going in. Our job is to communicate God's grace, to be clear, to be patient, to be bold enough to say what needs to be said, but to expect opposition and to look for confirmation. Um, so let's take this first reference to miracles. Um, this is in verse 3. Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. There are very few places in Scripture that tell us the purpose for miracles. We're usually left to infer why something happened. What is the purpose that the author of this passage, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives for the occurrence of these miracles? What is the purpose? Confirmation. Confirmation of the, the Word of God. And so, God is confirming His message of grace by demonstrating His power, His spiritual power in the physical realm. 
In other words, God is getting people's attention. He's saying, what these men are saying is valid. And here is my demonstration in support of that validity. Watch this change. If I can do this physically, I can do whatever I want spiritually. And so God's word goes out. It is proclaimed. And in confirmation of that, miracles occur. Um, You know, if we're asking ourselves, you know, why could Paul and Barnabas do this and Pastor Tom can't, right? Should we fire him and find somebody who can? Uh, He doesn't seem to be very good at performing miracles. Is this one of the criteria of pastoral leadership? And there are many, many different opinions within Christianity about this very subject, but I'll just say this for now. God's word has already been confirmed through history. All of these miracles were real. They took place. They established the work of the gospel and the word of God in the life of the church. And there's no current requirement that any further confirmation is needed. This is our confirmation. And so that's not to say that miracles are not still possible. They are. Uh, we, we see them periodically occur in the life of the people of God, and that's a good thing. The confirmation that, that I find most rewarding in what I do is the changing of a life, the changing of a hardened human heart into a softened soul of God. When that change happens, I feel greatly confirmed. I feel like, okay, I can keep going because God is working. And that in and of itself is a miracle because the only entity on planet Earth that can change a human heart is the Spirit of God. So we do still see the Spirit of God at work. Sometimes... In, in miracles. Normally, in the change, in the miracle of the change of a human heart. That kid in high school who was so full of himself, um, God broke that kid. He broke him. He crushed him in a way so that he could use him to continue what we're reading about right here. Not the healing miracles, the salvation miracles. That's what it's about. The grace of God continuing to go out into the world. So, we're called to communicate God's grace and to expect opposition when we do, but to also look for signs of confirmation that what is happening is happening by the hand of God. Expanding God's kingdom also includes spreading the gift of faith. Now, this one's a little trickier, and I'll try to explain. Paul is preaching, and he looks out and he sees this crippled man. 
And what does Paul notice about this man? He sees that he has the faith to be healed. And so Paul calls that faith out of him and says, stand up. And the guy does. And everybody gets it. It's clear. Well, let's ask this question. Where did that faith come from? Does the passage say where it came from? No, it doesn't. So we would probably need to go somewhere else in Scripture to figure out where faith comes from. Uh, What comes to my mind is Ephesians chapter 2, and I believe it's in verses 7, 8, and 9, somewhere in that stretch. Uh, God says that that faith is a gift from God. It is not by works so that none of us can boast. So here's what we know. The faith did not originate with the crippled man. Paul didn't look out and say, now there's a guy who has done enough to deserve the grace of God. Get up and walk. And the faith did not come from Paul. It came through the proclamation of the word, through Paul's preaching of Christ. And so as Paul shared the gospel, something happened in the heart and soul of this crippled man. And Paul saw it. He visibly saw the change. And he says, you know what? This guy is ready. And so Paul calls it out. We spread the gift of faith through proclamation with expectation. Paul spoke the gospel with the expectation that change would occur. And he somehow smelled the presence of the Holy Spirit in the room and said, okay, now is the time. Let's show the world what what we're doing, what this is all about. And then, of course, um, I I wasn't entirely honest with the kid that asked me, would you do that? Right? About, hey, how about an offering? Um, So, I'll put it this way. The entire movement of Christianity could have come to a screeching halt right here. If Paul and Barnabas would have said, ah, you know, what's a little sacrifice going to hurt? Come on, let's have dinner. Aren't we great? Yay, us. Any of that, and this whole progress of the gospel would have been interrupted. Paul and Barnabas got it. And they knew they weren't there for themselves. This uh, the way this whole thing worked, when, when Greek-minded people saw something that they interpreted to be spiritual, good or bad, they would invoke the gods by offering a sacrifice. You ever been to Greece? Any of you ever been to Greece? I know some of you have been to Greece. Those people love a party. All right? This is the Louisiana of Europe. Okay? And they love a party. And so something good happens, they throw a party. 
and they, call, they invoke their gods, they sacrifice, but most of what gets sacrificed gets served at the party, okay? Um, and they might take a, a portion and throw it into the sea if they're honoring Poseidon because he didn't wipe them off the face of the planet or something like that. But uh, in general, they throw a party. And so what's happening, Paul and Barnabas are faithful to what the movement of the Spirit This man is healed, everybody sees it, and the priest of the town goes, let's have a party. That's the thing we want to do because something great just happened. And so he grabs a couple of bulls from his temple, and he's bringing them to the city gate, and he's going to throw a big party for everyone. Paul and Barnabas, thankfully, use this as a teachable moment. And they say, no, no, this isn't about us. We're just like you. This is about the God who created us all. And if you'll notice, Paul says, you know, this is the one God, he doesn't say it quite that way, but the the God who created the earth and the sea and brings forth food from the ground and gives you plenty to eat, and gives you joy. Each of these would have been different gods in the minds of these Greek-minded people. So if you wanted joy, you sacrifice to one god. If you want a harvest, you sacrifice to another god. If you want to make sure there's going to be enough food on your table, you sacrifice to another god. And if you're afraid of the storm that might come from the sea, you sacrifice to Poseidon. And if you're afraid of something from land, will you sacrifice to Zeus, I guess. I don't know. Um, but you get the idea. And so Paul's little bitty speech there is a profound statement of monotheism to a people who've never heard this concept before. It says there's one God. He created you. And he gave you all that's good. Let's worship him. And so we communicate God's grace We spread the gift of faith, and we give God the glory, even amidst misunderstanding and persecution. So, talk about a thankless job. Paul comes in, preaches the gospel, heals a man who's been crippled for life, and what does he get for it? Stoned to death, all right, and dragged out of the city. This was a, this was, you know, as if being stoned to death was not Uh, humiliating enough they drag his body down the street as if to say to everyone this man is now officially discredited you you may now heretofore ignore anything he previously said we won go back home and do whatever you were doing before he came um what did paul do Got back up. Where'd he go? Back to town. This is John stinking Wayne right here. Okay? He gets, he gets killed, and, and the, the text is really unclear as to whether we're witnessing a miracle. Like, was he really stoned to death? Or did they just think he was dead? Whatever. If they were humming rocks at him until he collapsed in a pile of himself and then they dragged him out and threw him outside the city gates and he got up and walked back into town, I'm saying miracle. Right? Because 
I'd be crying for mama, right? And I'd be head back to that place over there as quick as I could. Um, so Paul, John Wayne, the apostle, gets up and rides back into the fight. Um, this is all part of the expansion, the extension of the gospel. This call to communicate God's grace, the call to see his faith spread, and the call to give God the glory in the midst of misunderstanding and even persecution. We are called to be his agents of light and grace in this world. Um, so, at this point in the story, everything changes from going to new places to returning to previous places. Did you notice on the map they kind of went back to almost every place they had previously visited? So something different is happening now. They're going back and they're shoring up and strengthening God's people in these places where the church has been newly born. Let's just take a quick look at what's going on. The first calling that is extended to us in this portion of the text is the call to encourage God's people, to be those who offer encouragement. Um, verse 21, they preached the good news in that city, won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. That's the northern Antioch strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. What is the faith they were calling them to remain true to? Salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Were they calling them to remain true to their own uh, volition, to their own will, to their own determination to be good people? No. They're saying, there's a new sheriff in town. And his name is Christ. His weapon is grace. Abide there. Abide in Christ by pointing people back to the grace of God. We encourage them in their faith. We encourage God's people by encouraging them to abide in Christ and to persevere in hardship. Do you see the only portion of, the, of Paul's instruction to all these churches that he's coming back to? The only portion that is recorded for us is this. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Well, that's not going to win friends and influence people. Uh, all your problems are solved. You're going to have money. You're going to have health. You're going to have happiness. No. We must go through many hardships in order to enter the kingdom of God. We're to be those who encourage God's people to abide in Christ and to persevere 
in hardship. Let me ask you this question. What encourages you? What encourages you in your faith, in your life, in your day? And are we, are we the people that God is using to pour out encouragement on others? So, you get up in the morning, and let's say there's somebody else there, just hypothetically, right? Not picking on anybody in particular. And one of you wakes up in a good mood, and the other one wakes up in a bad mood. Has this ever happened to anybody else? No, of course not. Um, and so, one of you's in a good mood, one of you's in a bad mood, um, and, and you both start talking to each other. Which one is more likely to influence the other? The bad mood, right? And... God knows this, and he knows that if, if he planted all these churches and Paul and Barnabas just went back to Antioch, that it would all spiral down into contention, division, uh, argument, and ugliness. And so he sends these two men back to encourage, to strengthen, to bring out the best in these young, new churches. And we are to be those people who speak into other people's lives the encouragement and grace that they need to be strengthened. And they do another thing. They encourage God's people and they care for God's people. They go back to each one of these places where they had planted a church and they select from among the people there, elders to govern and care for and shepherd the church to make sure that these new Christians were cared for, that they had some, uh, someone there to mediate differences, to pray, to love, to care for God's people. And the criteria that they use for their elders, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. They appoint Christ-centered leaders for the church. Men who are not there for themselves and who maybe don't even have anything to prove but who are there to point the church back to the grace and love of Christ. We are to be those types of leaders in the church. The kind who care for others by pointing them back to the grace of God through Jesus Christ. You have just witnessed the first occasion in the history of the church where the apostles let go of authority, vested it in a second generation of leaders, and walked away. Did you see that? That was pretty bold. Paul and Barnabas appoint these elders, and they keep on going. Because they know the people of God will be cared for if their hearts are centered on Christ. And God's people are cared for again 
when they get back home to their home church in Antioch, what do they do? They communicate with their congregation everything that's happened. Can you imagine the joy in that place to know that this is almost three years after they left, Paul and Barnabas come back and they say, you're not going to believe what happened. And they communicate with the congregation and they connect. It says they spent considerable time there or they stayed there a long time with the disciples at the end of verse 28. There is something about this being together over time that makes a huge difference in our spiritual lives. When we know people who have known us for a while, we can't fool them quite as easily. They're there for us. They know us. They pray for us. They help us to stay grounded in the grace of God through Jesus Christ. That's what we do as a church for each other. And so this whole thing has two sides. That we are a people who go out and take the message of grace to the world. And that we're also a people who gather together and we care for each other. We strengthen each other. We encourage each other. And when all of this happens, self-interested little jerks can actually become people who know the grace of God. Who can be at least a little more tolerable. My wife isn't in the room, so I can say that, right? Over time, as we all encourage and strengthen each other in our faith. Will you pray with me? God, our Father, we marvel at your grace, at the way in which you send us out and you call us back. Lord, you want us to be light in the world but you also know that we need each other for encouragement and strength to stay true to the faith that you have called us to in Jesus Christ. May we represent you well in the world, and may we care for one another well in your church. These things we ask in your Son's name. Amen.